Simon Burke was recently cast as Hugo, the drag mentor to the title character in the musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie. He has entered an age bracket that finds him playing a succession of paternal roles in The Sound of Music, La Cage Folle and Tommy Murphy's Strangers in Between, just to name a few. And for two decades, he worked alongside a couple of the most famous bears in the business. Ted's Big and Little, oh my. All of these are just some of the highlights of a career that continues to be varied and stellar. At the age of 13, Simon Burke landed the role of young Tom Allen in Fred Skepsey's acclaimed feature film, The Devil's Playground. His performance would reward him with the AFI Award for Best Actor and the accolade of being the youngest recipient honoured with the award. He would return to The Devil's Playground 38 years later, reprising the role of Tom Allen and serving the project as co-creator and executive producer. The television series would receive Actor and Logie Awards. Identifying the moment he walked into an empty theatre as a child and ventured onto the stage, he immediately recognised that this was where he wanted to be. Burke has been a regular in work since his early debut, completing an apprenticeship on the job with most of the country's leading actors. He has performed across all platforms, theatre, television, film, cabaret and musical theatre. It continues to be a rewarding and busy time on stage and off for Simon Burke. We discuss the many stages he has traversed and a lot more in this riveting episode of Stages. The first Adelaide Cabaret Festival that I was involved with, which was, I guess, 2002 or three, when David Babani, who ended up owning and operating Chocolate Factory in London, uh, he had an arrangement with Julia Holt, from, uh, who was running Adelaide Cabaret Festival, and he would come out every year. I did it for about five years. And because of his extraordinary connections, he would bring out a composer with him and you would work on with them, like Andrew Lipper, Wild Party, I played Burst and that, or um, oh, who's the... Maltby and Shire, Richard yeah. Maltby Jr. Uh, what's his name? Um, Jason Robert Brown. And, and Jer- is- Jeremy Sams. In fact, that's how I came to go to do Sound of Music in London. So I had this you know, really great arrangement I mean, I didn't do it every year, but you know, people like myself, Townsend Carroll, Phil Quast, I think Judy Ganelli did it once, Stenlake, Rachel, and sometimes they'd bring over people like um, Julia Murney from from um, Broadway or stuff. So there was a kind of nice cross pollination of people, and you would just it wouldn't be new work. You just although one of them was um, Richard Morbury had a show called Take Flight, which had been done. Never got to Broadway, but it was the thing about Amelia Earhart and about the Wright brothers. It was about flight. And, um, yeah, you would just get to spend two weeks with Lipper, learning the songs of Wild Party with him playing for you, and then you do a concert version. That was just, just wonderful. Extraordinary experiences. Yeah. Mm. Um, you talked about the, uh, Jeremy Sams, and that's how you got to do mm. um, Sound of Music. Um, careers are often built on happy accidents like that, aren't they? They're sort of... Absolutely. I, I mean, bet people say right place, right time, which is a bit of a cliche, but certainly um, people that... You... I don't think... I mean, I th- yes, right place, right time. But what I really think it is, is um, what I... It's so funny, you know, when you get to the age where you say, what I tell young actors these days, but what I do, what I do say to all performers, and I, you know, 
I've been in the position of, of, of working with a lot of young performers the last couple of years who are just about to graduate or come into the business. And just, you have no idea what opportunities come from the most unexpected quarters. So it's not necessarily the right place at the right time, but being available or open to the idea of going the extra mile or taking less money to do something interesting. So, you know, for the, the Jeremy Sams example was I was doing, um, I was rehearsing the legendary production, Kookaburra production of Company, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Yes, legendary. <laughs> um, and Julia Holt from Adelaide Cabaret Festival rang and said, look, we've got Jeremy Sams arriving in a couple of weeks just to do a night with him. Uh, music he's composed, music he's music directed, music he's arranged, uh, music he's, or, or stuff he's translated from Brecht. Uh, you, Philip Quast, just one day's rehearsal. And I said, oh, look, I'm doing company, so I'm not sure if I can... I thought, oh, fuck it, I'm only playing Harry. So I just said to the agent, you know, just get me out of rehearsal for a couple of days. And they said no, and I said, well, I'm gonna do it. Like, you know, yes, I'm doing it. So I went down, and um, I knew who Jeremy Sams was, but I was certain he didn't know who I was. Although he'd worked with Philip Quast because he had MD'd Sunday in the Park with George with his wife playing Dot, Maria, ex-wife playing Maria, uh, Maria Freeman playing Dot. Um, and I walked in and Jeremy said to me, oh, you're that Simon Burke. He said, I remember you. Because you, you had quite a career in London also. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I had. Or the first time you've been yeah, here. Yeah, I spent there five years in the sort of mid to late 90s. And I'd done, you know, I took over the count in... Um, Night music. Night music. Um, played that for six months with Judy Dancer, Sean Phillips, and Larry Guitard, who was the original Count playing Frederick. Um, I'm getting lost here. Uh, so I walked in. Jeremy said, "Oh, you're that Simon Burke." He said, "I remember seeing you and stuff. I think you auditioned for me once about 15 years ago." He said, "I always wondered. I heard you gone back to Australia. I always wondered why you didn't stay here because you're so castable." Anyway. We had a great fun couple of days and, you know, I found him blindingly, um, just irresistibly clever and inspiring. He's just got, the, he's just got a way of talking and, and, and talking about music and music theatre, which is just, you know, on a completely another level. And as I was leaving to go back to the famous production of Company, he said to me, it's been so great working with you. He said, um, you really should consider coming back to London because, um, you know, you, you, you really could work here. He said, just don't leave it too long. I thought, thank you so much. <laughs> um, so I thought, look, I've made a lovely uh, mate and I've made a good contact if ever I should go back. And literally five weeks later, um, I got a call from my London agent saying, um, can you fly to London tomorrow to sing for... Lloyd Webber and Jeremy Sams for um, the captain in Sound of Music. So that's a very long, long way of saying yeah. you just, you know, that job was a couple hundred bucks and it meant having to kind of go out on a limb to sort of insist that I needed to do this and it meant sort of working, you know, 16 days in a row, but who cares? I mean, mm. like, um, 
you'd never in a million years think that that would lead to you know, playing a role on, at the London Palladium for a year and then staying for another five. So did they just cut the character of Harry out of um, <laughs> performances? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, serendipitously, it was... Uh, I'll never forget, it was... I was here in this house. It was midnight. It was the Friday night, and we had our last two shows on the Saturday. And um, my agent... Uh, call from London and said this has come up they're going to fly you can you go tomorrow I said no I'm doing two shows a company he said can you go on Sunday I said mm. and he said but the thing is they're going to fly you over and treat you well so we have to negotiate it now because you have to do it if you get it you can't they're not going to fly you over and you fly back and then say I'm not going to do it so that means you know my partner Peter was out, out with his workmates. Um, it was a Friday night, and he was he was <laughs> out with the girls from the office you know, till about four a.m. I kept texting him saying, "You need, we have to talk." And I'd get these texts back saying, "Oh yeah, what a blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, <laughs> he lumbered home at four a.m. and was in no mood to t- or stay to talk about it. And so, I was freaked out about it. I finally got to sleep. I woke up. I rang my agent here, and she, I remember she was in the shopping queue at, at Woolies. And I said, "She said you've got to do it." And I, I don't I had stuff that I had to get out of. And for some reason, I don't know. I was my relationship was brilliant. I was working really well here. I loved my house. And I thought about it, and I just thought, "No, not going to do it." And I rang the agent and said, no, um, it's just not the right time. And then I went into work at one o'clock and I went in to see David Campbell and Tamsin Carroll was in there and I just told them what had happened. And they said, are you fucking kidding me? And they literally took me by the scruff of the neck, took me to the company office, sat me down, we rang London and I said, yeah. And so within... 24 hours I was um, on a plane to London that's so, pretty ludicrous you know you got a shot at a lead in the West End I don't know what it was. Were, were you a bit scared nervous of, of no, I wasn't rejection scared. Or? no honestly I wasn't scared because I, I it, it seemed like Jeremy wanted me to do it and I, all I had to do was sing for Lloyd Webber and that it, it seemed like virtually a done deal not that that's you know because um, I knew that he wanted to work with me Look, I'd, I'd done London for five years in the mid-90s and I had you know, great success and great periods of uncertainty and it was a very, very, very personally life-changing experience in London the first time. I'm always, I, was, I was single and, um, and it, I, was, I was sort of just 30, but I was a bit of a late developer in terms of kind of life. And my life had been turned upside down in a good way. I don't know. I was just finally back in Australia. Things were going well. I was very happy and I thought, I don't want to... Well, it's one thing doing eight shows a week in the West End, but there's all those considerations of where you live, um, how you afford all that. Um, Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But then my my way out, that's a very interesting point. Interesting you say that. So my only way of doing it was I came back and I talked to Peter who 
uh, has an Italian passport and was really excited about working there because his line of work is, um, you know, art direction and graphic design and stuff and it's, you know, one of the centres of the world for it. And I said, we're going to do this. The only way, I've, I've lived in London and I've starved in London. I said, I'm getting paid really, really well. We are going to find a place next to the theatre. We're going to spend all the money. We're going to have the best time of our lives for a mm. year. We're going to enjoy it and then we're going to come home. And he said, fine. And so do that, got a great place, had a really fantastic time. And then two weeks before the show closed, I got offered a play at the Almeida for when the rain stops falling when the rain stops falling it for like you know one twentieth of the salary (laughs) (laughs) so there was no way i wasn't going to do that so we moved out of the west end way out west and um and that's where and because of peter's work as well we, we just ended up staying for five years doing yeah things i didn't expect great things but um yeah so i i guess that was what i was wary of 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 actually that happening in a way because like 12 months in and out back to Australia but we actually ended up moving then we bought a place and and had it not been for um, uh, the Devil's Playground um, experience and the, the idea that I had to do that miniseries we wouldn't, wouldn't have come back I don't think yeah. Once in a blue moon it's worth all the yakka That's when you taste the loving cup Year after year, the game's not worth a cracker Then the moon changes colour And the sky lights up with Grand ideas that aren't above your station The role of your life you always knew would come It takes 20 years to be an overnight sensation But you sometimes wonder why you never listen to your mum It's a world of endless callbacks and constant rejection And watching daytime telly till it's way too late You'd have to be a mug, you tell your mirror's sad reflection to sweat about a job that you would probably hate Then the call comes from your agent That they've seen you and they love you And they've cast you in the Lion King as blades of grass It's something undefinable The rough end of the pineapple Is what you've been given to stick in your biog What's great to finally sit down with you. This has taken yes. a while to coordinate. It has been. Um, I think you were doing the, the Wharf Review last time when we, when we first <laughs> probably spoke. The, probably the time before last, yeah. But it's really fortuitous, the timing, I think, because this week you've been cast in um, something about... Ja- every, everybody's talking Everybody's about talking about Jamie. Yeah, yeah. in the role of uh, Hugo. Yeah. Who's a bit of a mentor for, for the young man. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, it's it's terrific. Um very excited about. It. I haven't done a, a um, sort of big commercial musical for a while, actually. I've been mostly doing um, non-musical plays. Um, it's a beautiful show, um, great cast, um, lovely role, interesting role. I'm not sure. You get to the do world, some drag as well. I'm not sure you? if the world's ready for that. Although I have, done, I've done Edna, 
But you know, I didn't see it. Edna Turnblad, of I course, did, yeah. in hairspray. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't, but I didn't see that as as drag for some reason. That because that is such. I mean, you play, you actually play a woman. Yeah, you don't not drag. a drag queen. Yeah, yeah. and. Yeah. I found that one of the most beautiful acting experiences, even though it was at a great big arena. Um, I had such a fantastic um, makeup person and a great sort of, you know, body suit to put on. And I felt I could really lose myself in that role. And so playing a, you know, a clapped out old drag queen from Sheffield is fun, but a very different proposition. Loco Chanel. Loco Chanel. <laughs> It's a good name, saying? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Shut down. Um, and I just have found out yesterday that Tom Sherrard is going to play the young me, which um, which is which will be interesting and fun. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, do you have a web page? Because I've, I've searched and I couldn't find one. Yeah, I I ended up kind of ditching it. Really. I... Have you jumped onto any technology for your oh, yeah, no, career? I'm, I'm I I would call myself a very um, I mean, I use social media strategically, um, Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter, all for different reasons. Facebook more for friends, social media, um, Instagram, I'm going to have, I, I sort of gather a lot of followers that people are, you know, who, who are either interested in me as a performer or the kind of stuff I do. And um, I... I find that I just don't think people use web pages anymore. I think they go yeah. if, they, if they're interested in using social media, they go straight to your social media. Well, a lot of performers are certainly the Instagram pages or whatever, yeah. um, posting their work. I, I find myself quite political. On I mean, I, I I I feel like I mean, Facebook is friends, Insta is very much kind of um, I guess my career, and I find Twitter a great place to engage politically, which I which feeds the sort of hunger I have for politics and stuff. You're one of those unique beasts in that you have been a child, I don't want to say child star, but you're certainly a very successful child actor yeah. who has managed to uh, navigate yeah. a career into adulthood and maintain that sort of excellence performance and, and you've got longevity. But, yeah. but you, you started about age 12, was it, in a film called Cookborough? Um, it was a play, actually. It was a play, was it? Right. A play called Cookborough which was about the third play ever done at Nimrod, which is now Belvoir. And it was a play directed by Richard Werrett with a couple of, you know, no-hopers called like Peter Carroll, Robin Nevin, <laughs> Maggie Dens, Martin Vaughan, Chris Haywood, um, Tony Lund Jones. So I was, I was 12 in that. It was, um, I was one of three boys who was cast, but it was kind of the central role. It's kind of, uh, it was a new Australian play about a... a um, a foster kid who goes kind of a bit who has some behavioural problems, and that was the. I mean, if it weren't for that, but people obviously, Devil's Playground, which I did a year later, is 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 really the kickoff for for me. But I would not have done that had it not been for for doing that play and. That was the beginning of my sort of friendship and mentorship from Richard Warrett, who I knew kind of all, from then all my life and um, all, all, all the rest of his life. Um, what was Warrett like as a, as a man, as a 
as an artist? Well, the first time I met him was when I auditioned for that play. And I'll never forget it. I was 12. Came, my dad picked me up from school, City Boys High, went down in my school uniform. And um, we hadn't read the play, but there was a, he just gave me a full scat page with just this invective, this speech, like a whole full scat page of just the most disgusting language and, and like nasty kind of, just like someone having a tantrum, but with every word. And Richard said, I'd just like you to go down on stage and read that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I went down on stage. There was this little pin spot on the what is now the Belvoir Street stage. And um, I looked at the thing and I thought, 12-year-old me thought, oh, I know what this is. He's just gonna, he just wants to see if I'm embarrassed or scared about this. So I just went, Yeah, motherfucking please. <laughs> And she said, I think perhaps we should work together. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, that, people like Maggie Dents and Peter Carroll and Richard, all three of them actually, um, have, have been, you know, when you're 12 and, 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 and people of that standard and that have such generosity and sort of so such love, I guess. Um, they're, they're sort of examples of people that I've that I'm able to sort of take. Me, and 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 um, you know, Robin Nevin was um, in the play, and that was a very different type of. I mean, an exciting kind of person of such kind of uh, strength, and I guess she's a bit scary. She still is, but. Um, Act two of this play opened, uh, so I was, I was a difficult kid, and then she wasn't in the first half, and the, the second half they sent me to a psychiatrist, and it's Robin Nevin and me, and it's a scene where she's trying to get something out of me, and you know, you've heard this kid swear like, like a trooper for the first half, and, and she said, um, do you ever swear, John? And I look and I say, well, I said, I said B once, and yeah. Not very funny one, but I remember the first time I ever we had a preview or something, and when I said I said B once, and I heard a laugh from the audience, and I'll, I'll never forget it was like being injected with drugs. Like it was just I went, oh okay, this is what it's like, and so I would <laughs> kind of work on that. So from that time onwards, I sort of worked out how to kind of. Just, I mean, I'm self-taught, I guess, like we all are, really, no matter if you go to drama school or not. I think you basically are self-taught. You can only be taught by an audience. But I learned at 12 years old that an audience tells you how how to play a line. You've got to be a sponge, don't you? You've got to observe and listen mm. and talk and watch. And so I found... And <laughs> I remember, I remember uh, sort of... I mean, I never went over the top with it, but I'd, I'd, I'd push it right to the thing. And I remember there was the one point where I might have just pushed a bit too far and I just got this... <laughs> The famous Robin Nevin look. When you get that at 12, you never forget it, let me tell you. So what was your um, artistic influence b before Kookaburra? Um, obviously, your parents had got you an agent or something because you said, I want to be an actor. Or... Yeah, um, I'm not proud of this, but my parents weren't really interested in it at all. And uh, I was, and I had a friend at school 
Um, I was at Wallara Den by that stage and um, uh, my best friend at school was this sort of little chubby kid that did commercials and I was really not happy about it. I just thought I should be doing them. So I remember I, I traded some, you know, lunch or something with him for his agent's number and took it home to my parents and said, um, you know, my mate is doing this and I'd like to do it. And they said, oh, no, you don't need to do that. It's crazy. So um, apparently I rang the agent myself and booked an appointment. And uh, So you're watching a lot of TV or yeah, off to the was, movies often? Yeah, or? I was... Just stars on the screen, Jack. They're not real, like you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I was. Uh, no, I I'm was just a- curious about what what a young a young boy of, of ten, eleven. Yeah. What possesses them to to want to run away and join the circus? I mean, I grew up in the inner city. I grew up just on the border of Darlinghurst and Paddington, and I had had a couple of experiences before in that. Um, uh, it's when the new theatre was down in St Peter's Lane down near Skanks. Yes. And um, uh, there's a woman who lived next door to us. She was making the costumes for some kids' play. One Saturday afternoon, I helped her drag all the costumes up because she wanted there. And she was in the stalls of the theatre talking to the director, Judy, I remember her name was. And I was just walking around. And I just walked up onto the stage. And I was maybe eight or nine. And... Um, I mean, I'm not a sort of spiritual spooky person, but I honestly felt something. And I thought, she's going to ask me to be in this play. She's going to ask me to be in this play. She, uh, and then from the audience, the woman said, um, you look like the right height to be, um, to be Row Boy. Now, would you, like to, would you like to be in this play? So I, <coughs> I was a television, absolute television nut. I, I used to know um, I could... Um, it was TV Week and TV Times at them. We used to we we were TV Times family, not TV Week family. And I would buy it. Well, no, we'd get it every week. And I, you could my my, my parents could ask me what's on it. You know, eleven thirty a.m. on Channel Nine on a Thursday, and I I just knew for some reason I was just I was just fa- I was fascinated by it. I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe um. Was it a happy childhood? Was it was it perhaps escape or? Yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't the happiest childhood. There's a lot of um, uh, difficulty in the in the family. So um, yeah, I think it probably was a scam. So at thirteen, you you land the lead role in The Devil's Playground. Mm-hmm. Not only that, you win an AFI award for best actor. Yep. How extraordinary. Yeah. What. What does an adolescent draw upon to create a role as complex and introspective as young Tom Allen? In retrospect, I think it's... I mean, obviously you can't do it unless there's something innate in you that is that character. But... I'd say it's... 80% direction the 20% which is yours is crucial like you can't direct a kid is no good but if Fred Skepsy hadn't seen himself in me because I was playing him and 
I'm not, I'm not saying I was. I, I, I still remember he gave me a couple of line readings. I mean, we all hate line readings. And he gave me a couple of line readings, and I remember bristling about them. And um, I still I know which, exactly which two they are, and I still think they're wrong. <laughs> but... Oh, when you watch the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also one moment that I planned, one sort of dramatic moment that I remember planning that he for some reason escaped his notice and you know I, someone gives him some information I look up the camera and I go like <laughs> and I still think oh that's really quite acting but like so I mean I, I had an actor's sensibility of um, loving a director that just lets you that gets a performance out of you that, that, that kind of puts you in a place where you are able to be vulnerable and able to to, to be free with your emotions um, and I still at that stage I so I had an in, innate sense of what didn't feel right I think that's quite important and I guess an innate sense of what is a bit theatrical and borderline sort of cod and also yeah but you know you see, I guess it takes I don't know what it takes it was you know that definitely is right place right time and Although I often think with with performances that are talked about for years after, it's 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 not right place. It's sort of like a collision of the project, the the role, and the performer. So it's not even it's not about like it's just a kind of just a collision that happens, and you sort of uh, well, I'm I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for that, of course. Did the magnitude of, of the AFI award register with you as a as a thirteen year old, fourteen year old? Yeah, it did. It did. It did. It was because um, you'd be still the youngest. I was until year. that amazing little kid from um, uh, Lion. Oh right. Yeah, right. could kill him. <laughs> uh, he. He won, I think, two years ago. Yeah, I was I was the youngest ever, and 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 then that Sunny, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I mean, that was a beautiful performance. It's the same sort of thing. It's this collision of a person and a role on a project, and there's that performance which is just it just captures him and the character. And um, it's a very similar. Uh, I think it's a, his award and my award is are a similar appreciation of of what can happen when you take a, a young person and just uh, let them let them go. How many years later was it that you returned to the project as a TV series? Uh, it was I first came up with the idea in two thousand eleven. Um, and then, so what, what? What about the idea? Was that the, the well, child, child protection issues in the, in the media at the time? And no, no it was just, just... <laughs> just trying to find a, a gig for myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was fortuitous. Um, it, look, all these things again, collision. So uh, we were living in London, and I came back for Adelaide Cabaret Festival. I think David Campbell and Lisa were running it that year. And did, um, well, I did a kind of cabaret version of my album with Daniel Edmonds. And um, 
I was coming back through Sydney. And I had two days in Sydney. I caught up with Brian Walsh, who runs Foxtel, who's a very old friend. Uh, we had a pizza at Mario's. He told me about how Foxtel were really beefing up their drama and they're looking for really interesting projects. And then he started talking about, sort of apropos of nothing, um, the movie Devil's Playground. He's a Catholic about this, you know, the same age as the character would have been. And just saying, you know, that character you played was amazing. The film was so great. I think it stays with me always. And I just went, you know, in the eighth class of Red Wine, I said, I said, well, you could always do a TV series about whatever happened to that kid. Half jokingly. And he went, hmm, pitch it back to me. And so we finished the dinner. We didn't say anything more about it. I, I came home here and, you know, I had two days before I left and I could not sleep. So I just started thinking about it. And um, the next morning I rang my agent. You know, so those, those 2 a.m. ideas you think, if they're not there the next morning, they're gone. If they're there the next morning, you've got to do something about it. So I rang um, the agency I was with had had a development department. And they thought, mm, yeah, whatever, maybe. I said, no, I think this is, you know, Foxtel are looking for drama. This is before, I mean, all they had at that time was not all they had, but they hadn't gone into the big, you know, big high concept stuff. Yep. Um, I don't think Wentworth is even on at that stage. Um, so I was thinking, who should I approach? What producers should I approach to work out something to, to send back to, to, to Foxtel? And then out of the blue, literally out of the, hadn't heard from him for two years, the phone rang, it was Fred Skepsy, saying, hey, you little bastard, I'm in, you know, we're in uh, Sydney, the premiere of um, Eye of the Storm tonight. You want to come along? I went, yeah, okay. And I thought, well, I've got to get his blessing. And I've known him since I was 13, so there's no one turns me into a 13-year-old shy person more than Fred Skepsy. So I thought, how am I going to bring it up? So I took my friend Esther along. We went to the movie, went to the party, had a chat to Fred, went back to someone's hotel room like it was sort of two in the morning, and I thought, it's either now or never, so... And I thought he'd go, what a stupid idea. And he went, yeah, could, yeah, yeah, have a go at it. I, he gave me his blessing to pursue it. Uh, I didn't think, I think he thought nothing would happen of it. I then approached Matchbox, Tony Ayers at Matchbox, because I love what they do. Um, had a meeting with them on Skype, because by this time I was back in London. And we got Christos Jolkers involved. Um, because he'd written this sort of weird essay about Devil's Biogram, which is kind of weird. Um, and within a week, we had a one-pager to send back for Foxtel, and two days later, they gave us quite a decent amount of money to do, start developing it. So it was like, whoa. That's why I came back from London. At the same time, I thought, oh, that's right, they said, um, okay, great, you know, we'll develop it. You can be in it. Come back in two years when it's ready to shoot. And I thought, there's no way. You know, this is my idea. I want to be involved mm. in the creation of it. And then out of the blue, Disney asked me to um, come back to Australia to play Mr. Banks, which would sort of fund my relocation and give me sort of 18 months 
doing that beautiful role and that beautiful show. And they let me in my, I would take, you know, a week out here and there from my contract to go and do writers workshops and stuff. So look, it was just, it was just, that was an amazing amount of luck. And, uh, and the, 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 the end result was so satisfying. And so, um, it was beyond my wildest dreams what we came up with. Yeah. As an actor, how do you go about creating um, young Tom as a man? I mean, because obviously older Simon Burke is very different to young Simon Burke. Mm. What about Tom? What what happened in his life to sort of oh, so it's great. shape so, the man that he became? Well, it's so interesting because you have, um, you know, most, most projects I have to start from, you know, you're adapting a play or a, or a, or a musical or a, or a book into something. But this is taking, just adapting a character from 44. 40 years ago. And so I remember the first writer's room was ridiculous. We had people like David Marr and um, Father, one of those famous Father Brian, you know, one of those, the one on the radio, Father Frank, was it Frank Brennan? David Marr, Christos Chalkis, Chris Merkett, um, uh, uh, Penny Chapman, an amazing array of people. Andrew Bavell led the first writer's room. And so what we did was just start with um, the character and say, so what's the qualities that that character had as 13? And so we you know, put that up on a whiteboard and then we just sort of went, well, how would life in the 60s, 70s, 80s, what, what would they do to a person of that economic, social, economic, you know, cultural background? Would he have become a priest? Would he have become anti-church would he become would he be socially conservative would it be and so we just worked out wow, all this stuff wow. Andrew Bavell came up with the idea of him being a psychiatrist um, and then all this was bef- obviously I mean the reason why I went for it was because when you did the math the character was 13 and 55 which would make him he had to be my age so make him 35 years old, right? <laughs> <laughs> to be 48, that would made that made it it made it exactly 1988, and 1988 was the very first. Um, 1988 was was when the sort of early avengers of of clergy abuse started started trying to bring it to light and and had having their lives destroyed. Early, you know, early examples of parents that were trying to do stuff. So it very quickly became a, a story which would tackle that. And then absolutely miraculously, like the show was greenlit, we were into uh, writing the scripts, and then by the second draft, Julia Gillard announced the you know, Royal Commission into Institutional into responses to child um, to child abuse and it was suddenly in the zeitgeist and it was so we were just again very lucky I mean I don't like to say that I mean the the, the world and Australia and all the victims are lucky to have had a Prime Minister like Julia, Julia Gillard that did that but I mean one of the unintended consequences of that was that it made our show more topical more important to be made well, yeah, yeah. And funnily enough, everyone remembers the film as a film about clergy abuse, the original film. And it has nothing... It's just a very gentle comedy about a 13-year-old kid, um, you know, um, 
getting stiffies and like kissing girls. I mean, it's a really, it's quite a gentle film because it, you have a 13 year old kid and there's a priest in it. People just assume that it's about that, but it's, it's, it's not even a, it's not even a hint of it. Yeah. So it's interesting. So also, I suppose uh, what I love about the series is that it it takes that the innocence of the film and the character and drags it 35 years forward into something quite dark and... and um, Sinister time. Yeah. If you were wondering who I am, I am a man, just like any other man, unlike any other man. If you were wondering who I was, I was a boy, just an ordinary boy, starting out on some great mystery, on the road, when I had no choice, I waited out a century, I took a load until I found my voice. There's nothing wrong with being me If you were wondering who I love I love you That's all I have to do Cause I'm a man Just like any other man like any other man. So as a kid, are you taking acting classes or anything like that? Or no. you're serving an apprenticeship on sets and in rehearsal yeah. rooms? And Always. Um, look, many paths. What is it? One heaven. But um, it's not a better or worse way to become a working actor, but it is... It's a unique way, and it's. I, 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 it's kind of tough when you're younger. It's much tougher not to have trained, because you. I remember for ten years, from when I was, you know, sixteen or seventeen to twenty-six or twenty-seven, I just look at who's coming out of NIDA or VCL. They weren't VCL while pulling around, but you know. But I mean, like, um, you you'd look at. Yeah, who are the next bunch of young guys? Who's your composition? Who, well, who have had the benefit of three years, you know, university training, and who think they're better than me because they've done that they've trained. Yeah. Um, so I was behind the eight ball. I wasn't really, but I've had a feeling of being behind the eight ball, not having trained. Um, and then you know something clicks, or something clicked for me in my. I guess late 20s and early 30s where I just felt very comfortable not comfortable as in I thought I was good but comfortable about not having trained and comfortable to be about uh, knowing that the only real way to to keep getting better is by keeping 
on challenging yourself and going out of your comfort zone. And I've done that a lot, I think. You're in a, a niche position as an actor, I guess, at a young, as a young actor, because you had a profile. So did you find that, you know, um, you know, certainly through your adolescence as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, well, let's get Simon Burke, was, it, was there much competition at, at that age? Um, well, the business is very different then. I guess had I been... Had that, had I been, you know, had that happened to me 30 years later, um, I'd be like the, um, the young Oxenbolt kid and be off in Hollywood doing something. Because you, mm. you, you do a film like that, like Devil's Playground, with that kind of um, acclaim or whatever, 30 years later, and they just take you. I mean, I got offered a couple of things. I got offered a movie straight away. I got went, went into the Sullivans for... For eight weeks over the school holidays, um, but the conscious decision to work against that was either to when I finished high. My, my, my parents were very clear I wasn't allowed to do anything in year twelve because I, I was quite academic. I was quite good at school, so um, I was either going to go to uni or audition for NIDA or maybe just start working and then about three days before my HSC I got asked to audition for John Bell for his production of Romeo and Juliet that Mel Gibson was doing playing Romeo auditioning for um, his servant Balthazar and um, I was 16 I think about to turn 17 and I got that and it was like the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest in a, in, a, in a pretty big cast of people. And there's just no two ways about it that I was going to do it. And I think maybe it's my, my mum or my upbringing or something, that thing of... I mean, a lot of kids or people at that age who have had some success, if they're not guided properly, would think, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and do TV or whatever. But I, there was something about him. I had, a, I had a diligence about learning the craft and I thought that was the very best way to do it. I honestly remember, I think, watching Mel Gibson, who was an amazing stage actor. I'm sure you saw him. Yep. An absolutely, unbelievably brilliant, emotionally available, strong, masculine, but vulnerable... Um, and I, I was remember watching his Romeo at um, every single night at the age of seventeen, and and thought, yeah, I'm going to play that role one day. And then what was it? Five years later, I played it for Neil Armfield in Adelaide. Nowhere near as well as Mel, but um, there was something about, especially learning from him, but also being in a play in a tiny role because we did it for about nine months was really, that was amazing. Hmm. Sitting lots of plays and, and TV series like Scales of Justice. When did your first musical come along? Well, um, you'd done stuff before Les Mis, I assume. Les Mis is, I mean, I like to say it's my first, it was my first commercial musical. It was my first big musical was Les Mis. But I had done a couple of, maybe two or three things. I'd done... When I was 19, I did Philip Scott's Safety in Numbers. God love him. So, I mean, you know. 
if you want a kind of introduction into into the world of musical theatre and you're driving to Penrith in Phil Scott's car every day for three months and then, you know... It's you're a whole pre- course. Yeah, yeah, it was a whole course. I remember by the end of that show, I mean, there was three or four of us would drive with Phil. I mean, I don't think I drove in those days. Um, this was at the Q, I at guess. At the Q Theatre, yeah. yeah. And I'd never heard of Stephen Sondheim. And by the end of that thing, I, I knew the words of every single musical because he would play company there and follow his back and Swinney Todd on the way there. And I mean, amazing. And he was, you know, well, the funniest, well, the second funniest person <laughs> I've ever met because we'll talk about the funniest later. But, um, yeah, so I did that. I then did um, a show with Robin Archer in, in the, the year I did uh, Romeo and Juliet in um, Adelaide for Neil Arfield. Neil directed a show called The Conquest of Carmen Miranda, which was a Robin Archer thing. And Alan John was the musical director. I mean, I'm, I'm musical. I can read music. I'm did you sing at school? Were you in choirs or...? I learned piano to 15, age 15, you know, grade six or seven or something. Um, I didn't really sing much. But I always thought, thought I could. And then, funnily enough, Richard Warrick cast me in uh, the first, I think the first big Australian musical they ever did called Jonah Jones. Alan John. Alan John. Mm-hmm. Um, playing the lead role, the, the title role, I mean. Um, so look, yes, I'd done, well, basically I'd worked on three Australian musicals, but um, because they were all done at subsidised companies, they just seemed like plays to me. The idea of doing a big musical was just anathema to me. You're always sorry, you're always grateful, you're always wondering what might have been Then she walks in And still you're sorry And still you're grateful And still you wonder And still you doubt And she goes out Everything's different, nothing's changed, only maybe slightly rearranged. You're sorry, grateful, regretful, happy. Why look for answers when none occur? You always are what you always were which has nothing to do with all to do with her I remember being in a company at the Seymour Centre Richard Cottrell's Shakespeare Company for a year and the stage manager said to me this is 1986 or 76 I just heard this CD CDs were the big new thing she went to the CD of Les Mis and I'm just uh, and said, it's coming here next year, you should play Marius. And I listened to it, I thought, yeah, as if. And I just started listening to it and started listening to Empty Chairs. And um, so I was 
because I was not in music, in, in commercial musical theatre, I was a total nobody. I had a name for TV and whatever, but so I went through all the cattle calls for Marius and I'm absolutely certain that I had absolutely no chance with the Australian creatives or the Australian producers until Trevor Nunn. I somehow got to the, to the callbacks, final callbacks, those three or four of us. And I had three auditions with Trevor Nunn, I think. Because the world had really only seen Michael Ball play Marius, I yep. guess. Yeah. I mean, there was Michael Ball, and then they went straight. So whoever played it in, in New York, and then I guess I was the third person to play it in the world, I, as was Philip with Javert, as was Deb with Fontaine's so story. It's an, it's, an, it's an incredible... I mean, when you think of the thousands of people that have played those roles now, to be the third company in the world is... is it, that's almost, to me, more um, kind of shocking than getting an AFI award at 13 because it's not... A singular achievement it's a it's an achievement of it's something that just doesn't happen in australia that much anymore and no. you don't actually often have the third company of the third cast of a huge huge musical yeah. um so um yeah you're probably doing the second of uh, jamie is it oh, i guess you? yeah because it's not got to the stage yet that's probably true mm. yeah so so they must have seen every singing actor in Australia for, for, for all those roles, actually, but particularly Marius, your role. Yeah, but I mean, absolutely. And there were three or four guys, you know, my age or around my age, older or younger, that were absolutely pinned for it. But of course... Because they were known they, for their musical theatre repertoire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But remember, there was no whopper, no... VCA music theatre. There was, there was not, you know, in that in those days there probably there probably were fifteen guys up for it, whereas now there'd be one hundred and fifty. It's so I mean I'm very lucky in that sense because I had absolutely no, well, I had no training, but I had absolutely no music theatre experience really. But had it as as I was saying before, had it not been for Trevor Nunn. Um, I think he spotted in me, you know, his roots, which is, you know, theatre, non-musical theatre. Um, and from the time he arrived for the auditions, I felt like I had a shot at it. How'd you cope with the, with the you know, two show days? I mean, because that's a, that's a long show. Um, Oh, it it took it out of me. And um, I had to learn how to sing while I was doing it. And have that that technique that's going to support you eight shows a week. I started... um, I got into some trouble. Vocally? Yeah. Because... I mean, everyone did. I remember there was heaps and heaps and heaps. I remember... I'm someone who... also, I'd spent my life in subsidised theatre, so I'd never been off. But once I got a role that I... Once I got my singing sorted out, the next I went straight into Anything Goes. And I did two years of that, and I did not have one show off. Which I'm, I'm really, really proud of that. Because of the grounding that you got with Les Mis, you think? Or? I think so, and also because 
and just I, you I built up a musculature. Yeah, no, I kind of got a, an ethic about it. I mean, I think also things are different. Mental health and you know wellness and stuff is so much more. In whereas back then it's like, you know, you come from that school, you just you know you've got to get you off of the jaws of life. But back to Les Mis, I, I, I um, it's a big thing. Maris is a big thing, and I didn't have that you know that G for empty chairs really eight shows a week at the beginning of it um and so I found myself the first time I ever really had big singing lessons I found myself um John Fulford God rest his soul who it was a baritone with the principal with the with the AO and he was so he was scary as hell he just used to shout at me all the time don't sing like a bloody girl! God damn! <laughs> and he, he taught me some um, musculature and he taught me some vowels. You know, I hadn't even thought about vowel sounds because you just don't when you're just doing it. And that, and then a couple of years later, um, a guy that I went to in in the UK when I was doing Rail and Phantom, um, they're the two that sort of kind of taught me a, almost taught you a sort of healthy disrespect for your voice as much as a as much as of a, a way of, of an endurance because I mean Fulf was incredibly kind of physical muscular blokey guy and um, he wouldn't none of this airy fairy sort of you know wimpy singing which is great so sort of taught you not to be afraid of yourself but the show was I mean a, it's a hard show. B, it's very, very emotional. C, there's a lot of people. D, that was winter. I mean, I remember doing a two or three, four shows where I was the only principal on out of nine. Wow. And the barricade had some three people on it. <laughs> um, but it was great. I mean, yeah, amazing. Nearly, it nearly killed me, that show. You used to disappear with pinball machines, didn't you? God, you're good. I did. I used to go and meet Max Lambert in between the shows. Actually, no, that's not true. Max Lambert and I used to play pinball a lot. But Max introduced me to pinball. And so the way I would get through show, two shows days is I just go and play pinball. It's because you wouldn't speak. Yep. And you just concentrate. God, you've got a good memory. Mm. Oh, I love that. I must get back in. Pin bottle was my favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> Probably couldn't find them. Well, you need same. those things, those activities to yeah. sustain your and also it's well quite as, muscular yeah it's quite a muscular thing kind of it's not a workout but you're kind of you're standing and you're it's actually quite a i'd advise all all these young music theater people go out and play pinball between, between the shows, shows. Yeah. <laughs> that'll get you a job join us next time for part two of stages conversation with simon burke we discuss a swag of triumphant performances his gift as host of Play School, his time as national president of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, and he finds some time too to share some stories of his good friend Stuart Campbell. We've been listening to excerpts from Simon's album, Something About Always, available from iTunes with musical direction by Mr Daniel Edmonds. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time on Stages. <laughs>